0: Hey friends, my name is Ryan Hughley. I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I want to welcome you to our podcast. We're working to build a community position to experience God in daily life. Our weekly teaching is one piece of that work. So as you listen to this week's message, my prayer is that you would hear God inviting you to respond to His love and His desire for you. For more information, you can visit ridgeline.church. Well, we are officially past Thanksgiving, uh, which means it is now appropriate to begin celebrating Christmas. Um, I, I know that, 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 uh, that basically there are two types of people in the world. There are, uh, the first type is, and this is the category I fall in, there is one holiday at a time, people. And then the other category of people is, you've been listening to Christmas music since August. Okay? So just so I know where we're at, we're going to have like a real moment of confession, okay? And own who you are. Don't be ashamed. Um, One is right and one is wrong, but that's okay. It's okay to not be okay here. So if you are a one holiday at a time person like me, all right, I think we're going to be pretty evenly split. You've been listening to Christmas music since like June? Fewer weirdos, okay? There's a handful of weirdos, and then everyone else is normal. Okay, good. So... (laughs) So uh, I have a pretty strict like one holiday at a time. So that means no, I don't listen to Christmas music until after Thanksgiving. Um, I, don't, I don't like, we don't like to do the tree in our house until after Thanksgiving. How, how many people have their tree up already? Wow, that is impressive. How many did it before Thanksgiving? A lot of you, all right. <laughs> so, uh, so no Christmas lights till after Thanksgiving, like Tammy just removed the pumpkins. Uh, From our porch and that was like that was a big Transition now we're ready to move on into Christmas and so but because of this kind of one holiday at a time thing um, Usually what happens is that I put the outdoor Christmas lights up in the bitter cold because it's freezing So this year I decided last Monday to take advantage of the warm weather and to put up the Christmas lights early I did not turn them on I did not betray my tribe, okay, but they are up simply because it was warm Now, I had this experience. It was the same experience I have every single year when I go to put the Christmas lights up outside. I went downstairs into our storage. I pulled out the Christmas light bin. I took off the lid, and I found the exact same thing I find every year, which is this giant knot, this tangled mess of like a hundred strands of Christmas lights. I don't know what happens inside of this bin if we have like demons that are just... Committed, but, but, but no matter how carefully I put them away, it always ends up this big, tangled mess at the end. I would rather just buy all new Christmas lights every single year because it's such, I spend more time untangling them than I do actually putting them up on the house. Every year, it's the same tangled mess. Now, I bring this up because I was, I was literally looking at this tangled mess of Christmas lights last Monday, and uh, it made me think about a a conversation that I had had over text with my friend Mackenzie, who many of you know, uh, just a few days earlier. And we were talking about how sometimes we think about the only thing that really keeps us from spending time in relationship with Jesus every day. We think about we, we think that the, like the only obstacle to that is tools. So if I just had better tools, if I knew how to better spend that time, if I had a better plan in place, then, then, then I would be with God every single day. And the reality is, inside of all of us is this tangled mess of mental and emotional and spiritual and practical issues that keep us from sitting with God every single day, which is the third practice that we are going to end the year looking at in our position for change. So remember, we we believe that weekly worship and formative friendship and sitting with God are these three rhythms that God invites us to inhabit so that we can experience meaningful relationship with him and often we think well if I just had all the right tools then I would spend time with God every single day and the truth is it's much more complicated than that and so what we want to do is we're going to round out this end of the year by trying to untangle these knots that keep us from spending time with God so we're going to talk about things like priority We're going to talk about the issue of distrust. If you've ever been through a trying or traumatic situation in your life, many people back up from that going, why did God allow that to happen? And as a result of the pain, we don't want to relate with a God that we don't trust. And there is practical issues and there is tools that we need to understand and how to have a relationship with him. But this morning where I want to start is I want to talk about getting past guilt. I think one of... The great obstructions to our daily pursuit of God is the guilt and the shame that we carry as a result of that guilt. And so let's start with some definition this morning as we are going to be, our theme is going to be guilt. Let's start with definition so we really are on the same page with what I'm talking about. Guilt is the felt belief that I have done something wrong. Guilt is the felt belief that I have done something wrong. And the truth is, guilt, I would argue, is a good and an appropriate response for us to have. Because sometimes, I know this is uncomfortable, but sometimes we do things wrong. Now historically, Christians have thought about sin as falling into two categories. And so I don't want to assume that we all understand this and think clearly about this. And so there's two categories historically that sin falls into. The first is there are sins of commission, sins of commission. A sin of commission is when you do something that God has said, do not do that. Okay. So we have these very clear, because I think about the 10 commandments, that's probably the most black and white place to think about this. We have commands like thou uh, shall not steal. Thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not covet. So when you lie, steal, or covet, you are doing what God has said not to do. That's a sin of commission. But what we often forget, especially as Christians, is that there are also sins of omission, which is when we don't do the things that God has told us to do. The example that comes to mind for me is one of the most common commands throughout the New Testament to those of us who follow Jesus is the command to love one another. And then if you think about Paul's beautiful chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, where he really describes in poetic and practical language what love is, he says love is patient, it's kind, it's gentle. And so when we are not patient with one another, when we are not kind to one another, when we are not gentle to one another, then we are not loving. And that is a sin of omission. And so there are both sins of commission, commission and omission, but, but the thing is guilt is not the problem. Because when we do something that God has told us not to do, or we don't do something that God has told us to do, then guilt is one of the, like, uh, conviction would be another word. That's one of, like, the the Holy Spirit puts his finger on that and goes, listen, this is, you will not flourish if you continue down this path. That's the, the way that guilt should function in our lives. So guilt's not the problem. The problem is our response to it. Because oftentimes, our response to guilt is to run from God rather than hearing it as an invitation to return to relationship with him we decide i'm I'm going to distance myself from god and so what we do is we we sort of avoid god we avoid him For fear of condemnation and judgment we think man i did something god did not want me to do he's told me not to do and and if i sit with him and i spend time in the discomfort of this guilt with him there's going to be judgment and condemn uh, condemnation and i don't want to feel that discomfort and so we just sort of like keep our distance from god and we we let like a few days go by We're, we're not even necessarily like trying to do a bunch of good stuff to make up for the bad stuff we're just like i'm just going to give this a minute let what has to be God's tremendous anger toward me cool off, and then maybe I'll talk to him next week. And the real problem with that is that it severely weakens our relationship with God. And it puts us in a position where we are not relating with him in an authentic and an honest way. And so this morning, I think it's really important that we take a few minutes to diagnose why we run why is it when we are in a a state of feeling and experiencing guilt because of something that we have done wrong why is it that we run from him we need to to really understand why that is because you can't prescribe a proper solution apart from an accurate diagnosis agreed like this week uh, earlier this week Tammy had uh, was having some severe congestion that we thought was a cold We, of course, got her COVID tested in case it was a a breakthrough case because, like, anything you have now, you need to get, like, my knee was sore after a hike, and I was like, I should probably get COVID tested because this (laughs) could for sure be because of COVID. Anything can be as if you're just in doubt, if you don't wake up feeling awesome, just shove that thing up your nose, and let's just make sure we're all good, okay? So she got COVID tested. It was negative, so we just thought it was a cold. So as a result, she was taking Sudafed for, like, two days. And uh, the problem is, it turns out it was a sinus infection. And Sudafed not only does not help with a sinus infection, it can actually make congestion worse when you have that. What she needed was an antibiotic. And so the reason that I bring this up is because we can't prescribe the proper solution apart from an accurate diagnosis. And so we need to understand why is it, when we feel a sense of guilt, why do we run from God? And as I sit with that question, I think there's two big knots that come to mind for me. The first one, if you're taking notes, you can write this down, is this. I believe that we run because we believe Jesus' love is conditioned on our behavior. I think that's probably like the the foundation reason that we run. We believe inside of us, we believe that God's love for us is conditioned on our behavior. I would argue that the most challenging biblical truth for us to believe is also the most critical. And that belief is that the love and the acceptance and the approval of God is not based on our success or our failure. But that's what we tend to believe. We think when I do good, when I obey, God loves me. When I don't obey, God does not love me. So we think his love and his acceptance, his approval, his favor toward us is contingent upon or conditioned upon our behavior. And the reality is it is based on grace. Which if there is one truth that is the heartbeat of Christian faith, it is grace. And so we have to understand it. And I think one of the best places for us to think about grace together is in the New Testament book of Ephesians. And so if you have a Bible on you this morning, or the, an app that you like to read on, why don't you go ahead and, uh, and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I also want to say, if at any point questions come to mind, we're going to take a time uh, of Q&A at the end of my message this morning. And so feel free to text those questions in whenever you got them, and we'll tackle them at the end. But get to Ephesians chapter 2. Um, we're going to look at the first 10 verses here. And I'm gonna break these into two because verses 1 through 3 is Paul describing our state before grace and then 4 through 10 is him describing our state after grace and so I want you to to notice this look with me at Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 Paul says and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world according to the ruler of the power of the air the spirit now working in the disobedient that's a reference to Satan we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. So, Paul's describing this state uh, prior to experiencing the grace of God in Christ. And notice how he describes us as spiritually dead and enslaved to this false self and all of its misdirected desires and inclinations. And so as a result of that, we, prior to grace, live opposed to God. Opposed to his word, opposed to his way, and just kind of like grappling in the dark. And then, thankfully, if all we had was the first three verses, it would be like the most depressing thing Paul ever said. Verse four takes a really encouraging turn. He says, but God, who is rich in mercy... Because of his great love that he had for us, he made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Now, there is a lot there, but here's where I really want to draw your attention. I want you to notice again in verse 4 that Paul says that God is rich in mercy and that because of his great love for us, he chose to make us alive. And so prior to grace, it's, it's like spiritually speaking, the lights were off in our lives. And we were just stumbling around in the dark spiritually, blind to who God is, blind to where he is and how he's working. And then grace was God stepping in, in Christ, and flipping the lights on. So that we could see him and experience him, and know him. And most important for us to understand is that you didn't earn that. You didn't earn that. Notice that God loved us in our fallen state, in our darkened state, in our deadened state. It was there that God loved us. No one has ever woken up like some random morning, They're like, you know what? Today's the day I'm going to start obeying God. And then in response to that, he's like, all right, here's my love and grace. That has never happened one time. What happens is we're stumbling around in the dark. He flips the switch and he pours grace because of his love. All of that happened before you and I could do anything. We are saved. We are loved. We are accepted by grace, and I would argue that this is maybe the most important truth for us to give our lives to contemplate, because the reality is, even though we might sit in a, in a service like this and amen that as truth, functionally, we oftentimes don't believe that in our gut. We believe God loves us if we are good, and he does not if we do something wrong. And that is one of the chief reasons why when we feel guilt because of doing or not doing, something that God hasn't called us to, why we run from him. But it's not the only reason. Secondly is this. We run because we believe in a Jesus contrary to the Jesus of Scripture. We run because we believe in a Jesus contrary to the Jesus of Scripture. And I'm not just talking about the blonde-haired, blue-eyed, creepy surfer Jesus. I'm not talking, that is a problem as well. But um, that's not what I'm talking about. Not talking that we just visibly see a different Jesus than the one in scripture. I'm talking about that we see, when we look at his character and who he is and what he's like and how he responds, we oftentimes functionally believe in a Jesus that is different than the one that we see in the pages of scripture. The inside each of us is a deep emotional belief that Jesus is a God of condemnation rather than compassion. And when you believe that, you have this imagery in your mind of Jesus, like being in the heavens, playing whack-a-mole with your sin. And so every time your sin rears its head, Jesus is faithfully there to smack you back down. And so number one, that's a problem. And number two, if you really want me to feel loved, I need one of you to find me this game. Because this is real-life human whack-a-mole that you can play like in your backyard. We'll set it up in the lobby. It'll be a blasty blast. It'll be so great, okay? But listen, that's, oftentimes that's the way that we conceive of Jesus. He's just looking, just waiting to smack us back down. And the problem again is that we do not see one example of Jesus responding to a broken person in that way in the entirety of the New Testament. There's no example of it. And while there's a bunch of different places that I think that we could examine and look at, when I was thinking about this a couple of weeks ago, for some reason, John 21 is the text and the story that jumped into my mind. So, uh, go left in your Bible if you've got a Bible in front of you. Go to John 21. I just want to look at verses 15 to 19. It's this brief story of Jesus' interaction with uh, with Peter, and I want to set this up so that we understand what's happening here. So, John 21. This is post the resurrection of Jesus, and so he's made a couple of initial appearances to his disciples, and they have a sense like oh my gosh, this guy like literally took up his own life and, but are not sure yet what's going on. And so John 21 centers on Jesus' interaction with Peter. Now I want you to understand where Peter's at as we look at this story because Peter is just coming out of one of the greatest failures in his life. And as a result, would have been carrying an immense amount of guilt. Think about it. So the night before Jesus is crucified, Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples for the last time. He predicts that each of them is going to deny him and to run from him when his own trial and persecution comes. And Peter arrogantly responds, not me, all these other fools, they they might, they might all abandon you, but I will not, I will not do that. So he had just done that. If you don't know, Luther called pride the mother of all sin. So Peter was wrong in this moment. Well-intentioned, but wrong. To arrogantly contradict Jesus, which I just feel like in general, Peter does it a couple of times. Doesn't learn the lesson. It never goes well for him. There's never one time when Jesus is like, you're right. That never happened. Okay, so he, he, he arrogantly denies his own ability to deny Christ. And then in this moment of pain and anxiety and suffering, Jesus asks the disciples to watch and pray with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. So they will be alert to the trial that's coming in their life. And Peter's response is to sleep. And then just moments after Jesus' arrest, uh, Peter does exactly what Jesus said he would. And he denies even knowing Jesus, not once, but three times. Just imagine the relational betrayal that that would have felt like imagine that you and I are friends and know one another and you're going through this tremendous like your life is on the line trial and I'm like yeah I don't even know him it's pretty gross and so Peter's carrying all of that and then like Peter finds the tomb and it's empty which would have been weird and then there's all these rumors like Jesus is back and so you gotta think like what is Peter thinking he has to be wondering, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure Jesus is like super fired up to see me because <laughs> I failed spectacularly in his worst moment. And so then we come to John 21 and we don't have to wonder about how will Jesus respond in the midst of this massive betrayal. We get to actually read about it. So look at verse 15. It said, when they had eaten breakfast, so Jesus cooks them a meal on the beach, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon Son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told them. He asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. Truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you do not want to go. He said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. After saying this, he told him, follow me. All right, so now here's, here's what I want you to notice. I want you to notice what is not here. And then I want you to notice what is here. So what is not here is one ounce of judgment and rejection. Not once. Jesus doesn't even bring up Peter's failure. And there's all kinds of speculation and debate about why Jesus asked Peter three times. No one knows for sure. The best guess is probably that because it would have been significant for Peter that he denied Christ three times and then got to proclaim his love for him three times as well but nobody knows for sure but what we know for sure is not here is judgment and rejection what is here shockingly is an invitation to relationship where Jesus immediately invites him back to relationship with him no hoops to jump through no like you know you show me that you can have a good week and 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 I'll I'll take you back but you need to prove yourself cuz this you you did not have a very good couple of weeks. There's none of that. I also think that it's very interesting that Jesus doesn't even force Peter to face his failure. Instead, he asks him over and over again, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And could that be The reason that he asks him about his love over and over and over again is because before sin is ever an issue of behavior, it's a failure to love. The reason that we do what God tells us not to do, the reason that we don't do the things that God tells us to do, is it's always a failure of love. And so he brings him back to this issue of love over and over and over and over again. but I think it is so instructional for us and should be so formative to the way that we think about and understand Jesus to look at his response to Peter in John 21. And so here's what I would say is the big idea coming out of this whole thing, but really these two passages that we've just looked at, it's this. Jesus always invites us in our guilt to return to relationship with him. Listen, always. Always no matter how spectacular the failure, Jesus always invites us in our guilt to return to relationship with him. So it's, it's like every single time you feel the weight of guilt. Jesus is speaking over you. Hey, I, I understand that you kind of like have fallen behind. I understand that you have wandered away but just come back up here with me. Come, come follow me. Come be with me. That's the invitation that is extended to us over and over and over again. And the truth is, that's what repentance is. Repentance is not just the admission, I did something that God told me not to do. It's a return to relationship. To say, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to just go my own way anymore. I'm going to follow Jesus in relationship again. That is, is what repentance is and so we've looked at why we have a tendency to run in our guilt primarily just for sake of review it's because we believe Jesus love is conditioned on our behavior and secondly that we believe in a Jesus who is contrary to the Jesus of the scriptures so that helps us understand maybe a little bit of why do we respond this way in our guilt the question is what do we do to actually combat these two mistakes and, and I would argue that the way that we combat these two mistakes is to do the opposite of them. So we have to get our hearts and our minds around the fact that we are loved and accepted on the basis of grace. And we have to allow the scriptures to form our view of who Jesus is and what he's like. And that requires a lot more than a 30-35 minute sermon. So I feel like what happens in this place, what is happening right now, is is maybe through this, through looking at these scriptures together, it's like one, one little strand in that knot is being loosened. But it takes a lot more than one sermon to untie that knot for us. See, the reality is we only absorb what we aim our attention at over and over and over again. And this is why we have to sit with Jesus in the scriptures every day and so i want to invite you every day this week even if it's only for like five or ten minutes if you don't currently have a place that you're reading pick one of the gospels matthew mark luke or john and just spend five to ten minutes open that time asking that jesus would help you to see him for who he is and then read a small passages. You don't have to read a whole chapter. You don't have to read a whole book. Who cares if you read through the whole Bible every single year? Reading any Bible in a year is better than no Bible over the course of a year because you petered out in Leviticus, okay? If you don't get that joke, read Leviticus. (laughs) Two pages in, you'll be like, oh yeah, 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 this is hard to read. A lot of blood. So much blood. (laughs) So just pick one of the four Gospels, Spend a couple of minutes reading a paragraph, a chapter, if you have the time and you want to, and just ask that, that Jesus would begin to form your understanding of grace, your understanding of who he is. But these things will not change in our hearts and minds, apart from really consistent contemplation that these things are true. We only truly absorb what we aim our attention at. And so let's take this week as an opportunity every day, to aim our attention at Jesus. Let me pray, and then we'll do some Q&A. So if you have any questions, make sure you get those texted in, all right? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for grace. We thank you that your love, your approval, your invitation to relationship is not based on our behavior. We thank you that you don't love us more on our quote-unquote good days than you do our bad days. We thank you that your love is unchanging. And Lord, we confess that we don't, we don't believe that much of the time. And so Lord, I, I pray that you would change that in us. Help us to really know your grace. And Lord, we confess that oftentimes we create this caricature of you that is not who you truly are, not who you've revealed yourself to be. And so, Lord, as with with everything in life, I I pray that your word would be what forms our view of you. That it would not be our emotions. That it would not be our own thoughts. But who you have revealed yourself to be in the Bible. Lord, I pray that what would come out of these few weeks that we spend together on this subject matter would be more consistent quality time spent in relationship being with you. and We confess it's hard for us, and so we ask for your help. We thank you for your compassion, your love, your patience, and your understanding. I pray that we would always see you with your arms open and never crossed, welcoming us back to you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.